Welcome to Question Period. I'm Evan Solomon. This is a special weekend. Many of you are celebrating Easter, Passover, Vasaki, and I'm sure you found ways to do it virtually. My family had a Zoom Seder as Zader. So we all wish you and your loved ones well. But we are now, as the Prime Minister recently said, in the new normal. But what is that? The new normal turns out to be pretty sobering. The new normal is too many Canadians suffering from COVID-19. The new normal is too many people dying in places like long-term care facilities. The new normal is millions of people losing their jobs, concerned about paying rent, concerns about the survival of their business. And it's clear the most vulnerable in our society have been especially hard hit. So as we take this moment to thank frontline and essential workers who are doing heroic work away from their families to help all of us, today we're gonna to focus on the latest economic package to deal with this new normal. A day after Parliament passed that key subsidy bill, we begin with emergency aid. The way we support Canadians through this situation uh, will ensure that we come out of this situation in the best possible shape. When will businesses actually get the money from the government's new emergency subsidy? Will there be a special aid package for the energy industry? And after shocking projections of COVID-19 deaths, how long will the isolation rules go on? To talk about that, the Employment Minister Carla Qualtro joins us, and then testing troubles. And we need to start testing everyone possible. Why are so few tests still being conducted in provinces like Ontario? And before we get a vaccine, is there a way back? Is it mass testing? Is that possible? Do we have the capacity? Frontline doctors Isaac Bogosh and Michael Warner weigh in on that. And if Canada has hit the peak of the crisis, plus disappearing jobs. As stark as those numbers are, they aren't a surprise for a lot of Canadians. Over a million jobs were lost in March alone, the worst single month change recorded in Canadian history. Is it time to make the temporary emergency response package a permanent guaranteed basic income? NDP leader Jagmeet Singh joins us with his view on that. Plus, BNN Bloomberg's Amanda Lang and the former deputy conservative leader Lisa Raitt weigh in on the new aid package and what needs to happen next. This is Question Period. Let's go get some answers. Ready, aim, deliver, but when, after weeks of delay and emergency sitting of Parliament, finally passed the 75% wage subsidy late yesterday, but the program will finally be judged on how efficiently and how quickly it delivers aid to businesses struggling to survive. So when will the money finally get to those businesses? Will the eligibility rules be relaxed? And what about an aid package for the energy sector? To talk about that and lots more, we are joined now by the Employment Minister, Carla Qualtro. Happy Easter to you and your family. I hope you're safe, Minister. Thanks for being here. Uh, look, businesses need to pay rent. You know that. You're hearing it all the time. There's a long delay to get to this point. The government, as you know, backtracked on the 10% wage subsidy. Now there's a 75% wage subsidy up to $57,700 uh, for 12 weeks. When will businesses get that money? Well, I can assure you, Evan, that we are pulling out all stops, like we did with the CERB, to deliver the, C the CWS, or the SUS, I guess, as we're calling it now, because we recognize the dire positions that businesses find themselves in now. Today, the finance minister said that it would take about two to four weeks from now to deliver this benefit. And like I said, if we can do it quicker, we certainly will. Um, but right now, the expected delivery date is two to four weeks from now. So two to four weeks, I mean, there are people that will, you know, have been out of business essentially for months. They've been told to close. One of the criteria was that businesses first had to prove that they'd 
uh, had a drop in revenue of 30% compared to last time, uh, this time last year. Then it was 15%. You've got the Canadian Federation of Independent Businesses saying, just drop that criteria. It's too complex. You're stopping people from getting the money. Will you drop it? Well, the way it's written is it's 15% for the month of March and then 30% for subsequent March, pardon me, for subsequent months. And it's my understanding that there's no uh, intent at this point to change that criteria. What about people falling through the cracks, sole proprietors, people who are paying themselves with dividends, not salaries? Uh, new businesses, will they be eligible? We have built into this, and thanks to the work of all parties, there's much more flexibility in this program now. Um, people who, businesses that are sole proprietors, businesses that are um, self-employed individuals, when it, you have to show a revenue stream and a reduction in that revenue stream, but there's a lot more flexibility and a lot more eligible entities, as defined under this law, that will qualify for this and be, will be eligible to get this benefit. What about uh, a pack, an aid package for the energy industry? I talked to Bill Morneau weeks ago. He said it's days away from coming. Will there be a specific package for the energy industry? Well, now that we've taken this broader approach on wage subsidies for all businesses, small, big and large, small and big, and nonprofits and charities, the Minister of Finance is turning his mind to a sectoral approach to support. And he spoke today in the House about understanding the number of industries, in particular oil and gas, that's been hit very hardly. And this isn't the first hit they've taken. We all know this. So we're looking at, and I don't have a timeline for you, but, but it, it is, is top coming. of mind for the Minister okay, of Finance. Okay, so, but just to confirm, it is a specific aid package it, for energy is coming. Well, a, a package that will cover that sector is coming, yes. I don't know if it will be broader, so we might bunch in some sectors, but we are going to take a sectoral approach in the next wave of support. Uh, Minister, we talk a lot, and I want to get to that, the projections on COVID from a health point of view, but because you're the Minister of Employment, does your government have a projection of how high unemployment will be and how many businesses will survive this? Do you have any modelling on that? Because the situation is so dynamic and really so dependent on the individual behaviour of Canadians in terms of the response and where specific outbreaks are going to be and what businesses will be impacted and the uptake of the wage subsidy, I predict, will have a significant impact on any projections we make. I just think it would be too speculative to even, you know, it would be a little, little more than a guess. But we know for sure that many, many, many more jobs are, are on the line and through initiatives like the wage subsidy, we hope to to, you know, curtail that significantly. Uh, let's talk about long-term health facilities. It's tragic what's happened in Quebec and Ontario. They're hot zones. People are scared to work there. I know health is a provincial responsibility, but should the federal government step in and make sure that those facilities, are, you know, are safe for people to live in? Well, you know, I can tell you, Evan, that the Minister of Health is completely preoccupied by this and working with her colleagues closely. We're looking at ways that we can support provinces and territories. We're working with individual employers. You know, as Minister responsible for disability inclusion, the same you know, tragic set of circumstances exists within assisted living facilities for people with disabilities. We have high numbers of vulnerable people living in close proximity. We have healthcare workers who are afraid to go and do their jobs, even though they love these people dearly. And whether it's PPE or alternate arrangements for the building the capacity to self-isolate, we are looking under every stone to find a solution to this. Okay, so the federal government may step in there. The Prime Minister said until there's a vaccine, and he's talking about a year to 18 months, does your government have an interim plan to get us back to some semblance of, quote, normality, a testing and tracing, testing and 
tagging model where Canadians have millions of tests frequently. Is that on the agenda? Are you gearing up for that? Well, we're always looking at ways that we can do more testing and working very closely again with the provinces and territories. We're building surge capacity within the public health agencies. So if a province has a surge of cases that we can help with the contact tracing, that we can help with, with, with increased efforts to test, we're leaning on students, we're leaning on retirees, we're leaning on volunteers, we're building an army that can go out there and really test and, and in particular contact trace because we know the more people we can find out there that might have come in contact and the more we can self-isolate them or quarantine them if they've got the virus, the better we'll be able to get a handle on but this. Minister, the viruses we know now, it's asymptomatic. That means we need to do mass testing. That will require millions yeah. of tests. So I'm going to just ask you again, yeah. does your government have an interim step before a vaccine to produce tens of millions of tests so people can get back to work and we can do that? Well, certainly I know the Minister of Health and her colleagues are looking at how we can increase our testing capacity. I know right now public health agencies still has a priority list of individuals that should be tested, kind of first, second, third line of defence, if you will. Um, of course we need to increase our numbers of tests, and of course we're looking at, um, I know FAC has approved different different companies to test their capacity to do individual testing. Um, I apologize, I don't know more details than that, Evan, but you know, what my sense getting these briefings is that brilliant minds are turning their attention to this, and we know testing is a key component of the success in this. I mean, the lack of testing has been an issue. Just a last question. I recognize this crisis is massive and unprecedented, but the fact is, and the hard truth is, some nations did things better than Canada so far. South Korea, New Zealand, they closed their borders more quickly. They tested uh, on a bigger level and faster. They had more mandatory isolation. Uh, they didn't experience the shortages that we had. We had a pandemic plan. Uh, why was Canada slower than those countries when lack of speed is not only costing lives, but m also massive economic damage? What I'd say in response, Evan, is that we made the best decisions we could with the information we had. We've always leaned very heavily on our experts in public health and our scientists. And at the time we made our decisions, we, we fervently believed that that was the time to make those decisions. And I think that, you know, looking back, of course, you know, do, you know, is there, would there have been an opportunity to act quicker? Well, that would be based on the information I have today. And so I think what I would say is I don't feel like there was a time when we didn't act quickly and promptly on the information that we had in front of us. All right. Um, there are going to be lots of uh, post-analysis, but we're not quite there, not even close yet. Minister Carla Qualtro, uh, have a good Easter. Thank you so much for joining us. I appreciate it. Meantime, the federal government has released its projections for the number of Canadians who may fall ill or die from COVID-19. Are our hospitals prepared to handle a potential surge in patients? And why is there such a lack of testing that we just spoke about? We'll get a perspective now from two frontline doctors. Next, stay right here with Question Period. While some of the numbers released today may seem stark, Canada's modelling demonstrates that the country still has an opportunity to control the epidemic and save lives. We cannot prevent every death, but we must prevent all the deaths that we can. So the federal government released its projections on what kind of devastation COVID-19 could have on Canada's health care system. The numbers are sobering and stark. Even if the country maintains its current public health measures, physical distancing and isolation, COVID-19 could still kill up to 22,000 Canadians over its course. It's already been brutally transforming to long-term health facilities, as we've seen there. Some of them are hellish, unconscionable scenes of tragic loss and suffering. 
Uh, the prime minister says this is the new normal until a vaccine is developed in a year or maybe 18 months. So how will our health care system cope with the shortages? And are there going to be more flare-ups or hotspots? Is there a way back before a vaccine through something like mass testing? Let's find out. Joining me now are two people working on the front lines of the COVID-19 crisis. Dr. Isaac Bogosh is an infectious disease specialist at the University of Toronto. He's been seeing his patients remotely. And Dr. Michael Warner is a director of critical care and an ICU physician at Michael Guerin Hospital in Toronto. Uh, gents, great to have you here, and I hope you and your families are good on this holiday season and, and healthy. Uh, Dr. Bogos, let me just start with you. Um, are you, the, project, the federal projections are out. Um, a lot of people are wondering, where are we on that curve? Are we, is the surge slash peak coming? What did you, what, how did you interpret that? Yeah, I think, you know, different parts of the country are, are at different parts of the, their epidemic curves. And it's nice to talk about it as Canada is one, but really we're seeing different epidemics in the different provinces. Some are earlier on than others. Um, and, you know, it's hard to know if you've really peaked until you're on the other side. I don't think we're on the other side of it in Ontario, uh, but we've certainly seen Alberta and BC start to flatten out. So I think the rest of the country still has a ways to go. Dr. Warner, you're on the front lines. What, what are you seeing in terms of, we're hearing, shortages, uh, you know, rationing of personal protective equipment, masks, and what are you seeing on the front lines? So right now in my hospital, we have what we need, but as Isaac mentioned, there's some regionalization to this. In particular in Ontario, there are some hospitals that are much harder hit than others, and they may have to employ more significant conservation strategies with their PPE and other equipment. But right now we do have capacity, but we don't know how long this is gonna last, and we also don't know whether it'll be one peak or multiple peaks, so we have to be prepared for the long haul. Yeah, talk about that, Dr. Bogosh. The Prime Minister talks about the big wave and then wavelets, multiple, can you just sort of break that down? What does that mean if we pass this peak? Are we still in the crisis? What does that mean? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, as we're in the pre-vaccine era, we this is not going to go away, and I don't think we can expect life to return to what we uh, previously remember it being. Uh, you know, certainly if they start to lift some of these public health restrictions even a little bit, we can expect to see what we call the second wave or, you know, a greater number of cases as people start to mingle again. So when when it's time to do that, it has to be done extremely carefully. And of course, as uh, Michael pointed out, you have to really make sure that there is the appropriate infrastructure in place that we can ensure that this is done as safely as possible and, and really identify and isolate people that are positive to mitigate the extent of that second wave. Yeah, Dr. Warner, who are you seeing? Is this, is COVID-19 hitting particular population? I mean, we've seen long-term care homes. The stories coming out, frankly, are, are shattering. Uh, is this targeting specific groups more than others? I think that uh, in any population that's already chronically ill or compromised in any way is vulnerable to having severe illness from COVID-19. Many of those patients will have advanced care planning discussions that occur in the community, which means they don't actually want to come to the ICU. But the patients that we're seeing, it's rather indiscriminate. There are patients who are younger than me who have COVID-19 and have had very bad complications. And then the oldest patients aren't much older than me. Uh, so it's hard to know exactly who this is going to affect. And people who have no comorbidities, that means no other illnesses, uh, can be uh, critically ill from this. So it's at this point, I think it's hard to anticipate who will get this in a severe way. And I think that's why everyone needs to be careful. Yeah, that busts that myth about some people uh, less vulnerable than others. Dr. Bogosh, let's talk about testing. 
man, Ontario, the testing was just shockingly low, just a mess there. I mean, testing 3,000 people uh, in a province of 14.5 million people. Uh, testing is key. How concerned are you about the lack of testing and how critical is it to up the testing? Yeah, so I mean, testing is one of the several pillars to responding to this epidemic. And of course, in Ontario, we're well aware of the uh, hurdles that we faced here to expand this. It's a problem. I appreciate that there's, um, you know, I think significant leadership now uh, at, uh, you know, from uh, Premier Ford saying, you know, this has got to be remedied uh, urgently in order for us to uh, really, uh, you know, start to have a better understanding of what the burden is here in Ontario and also to, uh, to see how well our uh, public health uh, efforts are, are, are actually working. So, you know, I think uh, I, I really hope to see over the next short period of time, like days, that this is rapidly scaled up. And really, we need testing in community settings. It's, it's, I think it's being done fairly well in the hospital. Uh, but but we sure, certainly need to expand in community settings as well. Yeah, Dr. Warren, I, I, you know, when I look at all these models that the federal government, the provincial governments are doing, you know, and I get they're trustworthy, but since we have not mass testing, we don't have randomized testing, we people we now know are asymptomatic and we're not testing them, how accurate do you think these numbers are in terms of who's got it and how widely spread it is? Well, governments have provided a best case and a worst case scenario, and the truth will lie somewhere in between. But unless we have testing, we don't know where the fires are to put out. On the inpatient side of things in the hospital, like Isaac said, we do get tests, uh, tests are available, but the turnaround time on testing needs to be quicker because patients who don't end up having COVID-19, uh, we actually have to use the same personal protective equipment until we get that negative result. So if we get the result in 15 minutes, we wouldn't waste as much personal protective equipment on the patients who don't actually. Yeah, that's critical. Okay, so what's the way forward, Dr. Bogars? Last question to you. If the vaccine is a year to 18 months away, as the Prime Minister said, maybe, maybe it's nine months away if, if we're lucky, but let's work on this other model. People aren't going to stay like this for a year, sitting in their homes, self-isolating. What is the no. way back, and is it testing and tracing? Like, what would that look like? Yeah, so I mean, once we start to see a sustained reduction in the number of new cases, and we're clearly at the uh, end of the, or at the bottom end of the epidemic curve, then it's, you know, I think some of the public health restrictions can slowly start to lift. But in, those, in that situation, we have to be able to rapidly identify positive cases, ensure that those, those individuals are placed in isolation, including their close contacts. Of course, part of that is supporting people who are in a 14-day isolation period to make sure that they adhere to it and that they have all, the, uh, all their needs met while they're in isolation. And, and, you know, I think we can hold this off for a while and, and slowly return to normal in a setting like that while we're waiting for, uh, while we're waiting for the vaccine. Yeah, and testing is the key, and we got to ramp Absolutely. that up. Uh, guys, Absolutely. I, I really appreciate both of you joining us. And first of all, I want to thank you and your teams for the incredible work you're doing, keeping us safe. I hope you and your families are well. Dr. Bogosh, Dr. Warner, thanks for your time today. Coming up on our program, as the, next, uh, econo as the economic pain deepens, is it time to reconsider programs like a permanent basic guaranteed income? The leader of the NDP, Jagmeet Singh, joins us next on that. And the key bill, that subsidy bill that was passed yesterday, was it enough? Stay right here with Question Period. We all knew this was going to be a tough time and that countries around the world are in a similar situation. But that's no comfort if you're out of a job, if you're having difficulty making ends meet. You need real support. 
So we're doing our best to help you bridge to better times. So over a million Canadians lost their jobs in a single month as a result of COVID-19 and the health crisis. But that just tells you part of the story. Another million Canadians have a job, but they have no work. Over 800,000 Canadians have lost 50% of their wages. And many others don't even qualify for the government support, especially some of the most vulnerable. Now, yesterday, Parliament passed a 75% wage subsidy. Well, the Corona Emergency uh, Response Benefit is putting $2,000 a month into the pocket of some Canadians who are out of work. But the NDP want to see a higher wage subsidy. They also want to make the benefit accessible to all Canadians. No more criteria. How much would that cost? How would that work? Let's find out. Joining us now is the NDP leader, Jagmeet Singh. Sir, I hope you and your family are okay in the midst of this uh, crisis. Um, let's first talk about the 75% wage subsidy package that was debated yesterday in Parliament. Um, is it enough? Do you believe uh, it, it captured everything you'd like to see? Well, the 75% was a number that I had put out when we met last for the previous emergency session because it was in line with what other countries are doing. We've seen UK, Denmark, and Sweden do at least 75% of a waste subsidy. So that's something that I called for, and I'm happy to see the government moving on that because it's a subsidy tied directly to keeping people employed, making sure people have a job. It also helps businesses stay afloat where they can continue to keep people on the payroll. So this is a good initiative. Uh, I want to see more supports for small business, and one of the things that I particularly want to see is a pause on mortgage, both residential and commercial, so that we can work towards a pause on residential and commercial rent as well. That's something that restaurant owners and small business have been telling me as one of their biggest fixed costs. So how would and that work? Struggling. Like how, I'm just trying to figure out the how long would that ha take place for, and how would that work? Like who would pay the landlords, or is it just telling the banks you you cannot close a mortgage, just delay everything for four months? Well, that's exactly it. Everyone's doing their part, and at this point in time, we know that the big six banks have posted nearly 50 billion dollars in profits last year alone. Uh, they've got massive profits that they've earned and they can ensure they can also play their part. And so the federal government has jurisdiction over uh, banks and setting of rates. They can absolutely enforce using the powers that we have at the federal level that more the banks put a pause in mortgage. If we have a pause in mortgage, then we can put a pause on rent. We can work with provinces to make sure that that happens and also ensure that happens for commercial uh, rent and mortgage as well so that no one is going to be out of uh, a place of work as a result of this crisis. That, Those are some of the initiatives. Right, that's, in, that's a heavy hand, uh, but okay, so that's one proposal. You've also called for the Emergency Relief Benefit Program. I just want people to appreciate, this is not the 75% wage subsidy, this is the up to $2,000 a month for four months, that's $8,000. There are criteria for that. You're saying there should be no criteria that even rich people should get, it, like mailing out $2,000 checks to everybody. Well, how would that work? Well, not at all. What I've said is the first approach should be we should make sure we send out money to all Canadians. Uh, as you know, Evan, there's a small percentage of people that are that are very wealthy. The vast majority of Canadians are those that are in, in a difficult situation right now. We need to make sure that this help is available to everybody. Instead of trying to sift through who covered, who's covered, who's not, let's cover everybody. And we can easily tax back and recover the amount that wasn't needed uh, by those families that were not in a difficult position. So, so how much would that, that, how much would that cost? Well, let's just focus on that. Uh, how much would it cost to give $2,000 to every Canadian adult, as you're, as you're talking about? 
Wait, two thousand. So we would factor in uh, two thousand dollars for every adult, and an additional two hundred fifty for each child is what we're proposing. We could easily figure that out with uh, the population and with the Statistics Canada details that uh, the, the government has access to. We can well, I, figure I, I that can out. I can tell you. Well, you, you know, it, it, according to Kevin Milligan, who's an economist in Vancouver, thirty million adults getting eight thousand dollars is two hundred and forty billion dollars. That doesn't count the seventy-five percent subsidy. So you think? getting to mailing out 240 billion dollar program to many people that don't need it is and you and and then you just think you'd claw back it, it, Evan that's not that's not the case you know that the percentage of Canadians that earn a lot of money is a small percentage the vast majority of Canadians are actually struggling and for me the thought of some people getting uh, access to a direct benefit that don't need it versus the millions of Canadians right now that are falling through the cracks I would rather make sure that no one falls through the cracks, then some people receive it that they don't need it, and we tax that but back. But how do you tax I've it back? Said, I mean, it sounds easy, but, uh, but I've also I think, said it, I think it's thing, worthwhile noting. One really important thing. Okay, I go, put forward that right now there's a bunch of criteria that are creating a, a barrier for people. For example, someone who's earning a very nominal amount of money, a very limited amount of money just because their, their work has been scaled down, they're precluded from applying to the CERB at this point in time. We've got people who are receiving a royalty. Maybe it's an artist, a Canadian musician, who is receiving a very nominal uh, royalty of $50 a month. Just over that $50 a month, right. they're not receiving the benefit. But, but so what I said to the Prime Minister, he should announce today that if you need this benefit, if you need money right now, everyone who needs the money right now should apply for it while the government fixes these gaps that but, we've asked them to fix. But to, to be candid, everyone who needs it is applying for it. There's five million people who have. So if that's 240 billion, that well, doesn't... Well, there's millions of Canadians that, that need it desperately I know, that but, don't but, apply. Well, I, I, I get it, but there's not an... Un, and, and believe me, I appreciate that we need to support Canadians. I just... The, the question is, therefore, do you give it to everyone? You still have the business bailouts. You still have maybe an energy bailout. Like, if that's 240 billion and then... Do you have any idea of what the total cost of all these aid packages would be in your if if the prime minister actually listened to what you were saying? Do you have any? We know we know that there's a need right now, and the current system isn't working. So we propose a solution right now for everyone who needs help. And the government has admitted that there are a lot of people falling through the cracks. One in three people that need it actually aren't able to apply for it. That's millions of Canadians. They, the prime minister has admitted it. We're saying get rid of the criteria. It's too complicated to say this person can and can't apply with these very right. random technicalities, people who are earning a limited income, someone who's earning $100 a month, just because they're earning $100 a month can't get this benefit uh, over that small amount. So we're saying, let's get rid of the criteria, allow Canadians to apply if they need help, and the government can fix the gaps do, in the system. Do you want to see the uh, Canadian Emergency Relief Benefit, $2,000 a month, translate or transition eventually into a permanent guaranteed basic income? Would you like to see that happen as well? Well, something we can look at, what I think we can absolutely commit to is the idea that we need to improve our social safety net. So that uh, proposition is, is one to consider, but I absolutely know we need to invest more in healthcare. I absolutely know that there's far too many people falling behind when it comes to lack of access to things like medical medication coverage. We know there's a lot of gaps in our social safety net and the crisis that we're in right now has, has exposed those gaps and we need to do a lot better. And I'm hoping at the end of this, when we come out of it, we don't go back to normal. We go back to something, we actually uh, move to an improvement where we take better care of one another and have better programs in place that respond to the needs of people.
All right, I, I really appreciate you joining us uh, on an important weekend. Uh, leader of the NDP, Jagmeet Singh. Thank you, sir. Take good care. Coming up on the program, the COVID-19 pandemic continues to have devastating impacts, not just on the healthcare system, but also, of course, on the economy. Over a million jobs lost last month alone. What will it take to improve a very bleak economic picture? The Scrum is next. Two special guests, Lisa Raitt and Amanda Lang. Stay with us on Question Period. There are many Canadians in real trouble right now because of COVID-19. Some are not covered by the wage subsidy or by CERB. We are working hard to find ways to support you too. So as Canada continues to suffer from the COVID-19 health crisis, the economic situation is looking increasingly dire. In March alone, as we know, over a million jobs were lost. That's the worst change ever recorded in a single month. But hundreds of thousands of Canadians are out of work. They're looking to government aid programs to help keep them afloat during these challenging times. More than 5 million Canadians, these numbers are just unbelievable, have already applied for the Canada Emergency Response Benefit and Employment Insurance since March. These are just staggering figures. And if the situation lasts into the summer, as the Prime Minister says, how long can the economy hang on? Is more devastation on the horizon? Let's put all this right now to the scrum. Andy Bergeron Oliver is a reporter with CTV News. She joins us from her home. So does Joyce Napier, CTV News Ottawa Bureau Chief. And our special guests today are the former Deputy Conservative Leader and current CTV political commentator, Lisa Raitt, and BNN Bloomberg's Amanda Lang. Well, happy Easter morning to all of you. Great to have you here. Amanda, i got to start with you. Um, even with all the aid packages, hundreds of billions of dollars we're talking about, what kind of impact is COVID-19 still having on the economy? I mean, it's devastating. And this is just early, right? Because we're going to get the data points as the weeks roll on. We begin to hear from companies about exactly what's happening. But we can already know from the unemployment figures uh, that those numbers are so high because businesses are just shut down. So the real question is not so much how bad is it now, but what is the lasting impact? Uh, when a business goes under, uh, and some proportion of them, and we're hearing anywhere from 10 to 30 percent, will not come back, right, of restaurants, uh, for instance. What, what happens on the other side of this? We're not roaring back. Uh, those people are certainly not roaring back. So there's some proportion of people that will not survive this in a really healthy way, Evan. And that's the real danger, depending on how long it goes on. Yeah, Lisa Rate, the yeah. goal of these packages is to preserve jobs uh, when this is all over, whenever that is. But a lot of people will not make it through. So I guess even though as massive as they are, are these packages comprehensive enough? We're going to find out fairly soon, Evan. I mean, if you take a look at some of the sectors that have been hit the hardest, travel and tourism, real estate is going to get hit very hard. I mean, these are the things that we're going to be seeing, as Amanda said, roll out over the coming months. We've been in lockdown now for about a month. Everybody knows around you that people are in lockdown. They're not necessarily able to go into work. And as a result, the economy has stopped for all intents and purposes. Now we're going to see what happens when you come to a steady state. And this is going to be the uncomfortable part for everybody. And I'm glad that the government made the changes that they did. I'm glad the parties are working together. But as well, we have to be prepared for what comes next. Yeah, Annie, the key is going to be delivery. Like, they passed the package last night. Okay, everyone likes the package. they got to get the money out the door. How much of a problem is that? 
Well, we have seen with that CERB benefit that the government is able to get work done quickly. You know, that's a program that generally would have taken months, if not years, to create. And a lot of people did get that payment within a day, sometimes two days. So the government is showing that it can get money to Canadians fast. But when it comes to businesses, as the two other commentators were just saying, you know, this already has been a month. A lot of businesses are on the brink of closure. Now they have to wait an additional two to five weeks to get this new wage subsidy. And for a lot of businesses, that's just too long. You couple that with the uncertainty and the government tried to clear up some of that uncertainty by releasing modeling saying that these measures would be in place till September saying that we could be in for multiple waves um, you know throughout the fall but there's a lot of uncertainty facing businesses and even with that government assistance even if they get it immediately the question for them is can they sustain this for another six months or potentially a year with the economy the way it is now yeah and Joyce Jagmeet Singh was just on the program he's saying one of the big problems with the program is there's too many criteria for example for the Canadian emergency relief benefit he says, dump the criteria, mail a check to everybody. Is the government open to that kind of change? Well, does the government have that kind of cash? I mean, do you want to send everybody, even those who don't need it, the $2,000 immediately? But as Annie said, you know, those, uh, the EI and the emergency benefits are getting to Canadians very, very fast. It took a couple of days. We've asked around. So that program worked. Now for the businesses, the 75% wage subsidy, maybe that will take a little bit longer. And you know, businesses, we know that the, probably the government's first mistake was to say only 10% subsidy and wasted a few weeks on that when we all knew that 10% would not save anybody and would not do any good. But you know, now that it's passed, um, if we look at the other programs and how fast they could put them, uh, put money in people's pockets, you know, fingers crossed, maybe they will, um, you know, hurry and put that money in the hands of businesses who are really needed. Well, uh, Lisa Raitt, they haven't put the hands in, in, in the hands of the energy sector yet. The energy sector is yeah. waiting for its own. Now, they, they're eligible for a lot of these packages, to be fair, but they keep saying there's a special package for the energy sector. How critical is that? It's very critical. I don't hear that language anymore, to be truthful, Evan. I think when the minister, Minister Morneau, was asked yesterday in the Senate or in the House about a package for oil and gas, he uh, brought it up to a higher level and said, well, we're looking at a variety of sectors. So now oil and gas is lumped in with everybody else. There's no special deal. It appears to be coming. And that is extremely difficult, not only for Alberta and Saskatchewan, but for Newfoundland and Labrador as well. Yeah, massive. Amanda, the other thing on the other side is politicians like the Prime Minister, Doug Ford, Donald Trump, just pick them. I guess in a moment of optimism, when we all need it, they say, when this is all done, the economy's gonna, quote, bounce back or roar back. I'm a bit skeptical, frankly. There's a lot of factors at play, the length of time, business survivability rates that you mm -hmm. talked about. Are, what do you make of that? How do you, you crunch the numbers on that? Yeah, I mean, so on the one hand, there's reason to believe that when the economy can restart, it's going to just restart. So the restaurant that just shuttered its doors and has no clientele will have clientele. The, the complexity, Evan, of course, is we don't know how quickly, we don't know whether there will be social distancing for months or even more than a year. Uh, so how we come back is a real question mark. What's unlike any other recession here is normally when you get this level of stimulus, you get a juice effect in the economy. You get a big pop in your GDP. 
that's not going to happen now. We're throwing money at people just to stay alive. Uh, we're throwing money, the wage subsidies, you know, paying 25% of the wages of your employees uh, may sound like a great deal. It's not such a great deal if you've got zero cash flow. So the, the pain is going to be uh, real. I don't think you, you can't blame any government for handling this um, in any way. I, I think expectations should be managed, though. This is going to be a recovery unlike any we've seen, and it may be long and slow. We don't know yet. Yeah, Annie, on, on that score, uh, Bill Morneau had his sort of moment yesterday. What, what's your, what do you expect next on the financial side from the government? Because the economic story is going to have a long tail. Well, obviously, the first priority for the government is fixing the holes so people who are falling through the cracks when it comes to the CERB benefit, and they did pave the way for that yesterday. Part of the motion that passed was the ability for the government to implement new measures when it comes to the CERB and the wage subsidy to help people who have currently been falling through the cracks. So that's, you know, seniors in many, in many cases, students, people who have lost part of their work. So that is going to be the immediate priority, I believe, for the government is making sure that those people get assistance. I mean, right now, the government really does have to throw money at the problem. In a lot of cases, that's maybe not the way to do it. But right now, that's really what the government has to focus about. They have to focus on putting money into the economy, putting money into the hands of people, and thinking about the fiscal and financial restraints that will come later. But for the priority right now, it has to be getting that money to Canadians. And I think that's where you're going to see the government focusing is on helping people who are falling through the cracks right now. Joyce, you wanted to weigh in quick? Well, you know, I think the, the word now is, I, I don't want to quote the Bee Gees, but I will, is staying alive. Um, and that's what these businesses have to do. I took a walk in my neighborhood and looked at all those closed shops and cafes and restaurants and wondered to myself how many of them will be back and what will that do to neighborhoods across the country as well, right? So I'm, I'm going for probably if, if, as, if we can keep as many of these businesses alive um, that's what the, you know, sort of, that's what it will look like on the other side. So that's anybody's guess. How many, how many will be able to stay afloat and how many will be back uh, whenever this is over? Right. Okay. I got to take a break and, and you can do what Joyce is doing and take a deep cut into your record collection as well to quote. But I like that Beachy's quote. We're going to take a short break. The scrum is sticking around. We have another round. And the tragedy that's going on in the long-term care homes is just a nightmare. And it raises the question, does the federal government need to step in to protect the most vulnerable? The Scrum is back next. Stay with us. Our forecast predicts that we will see from about 22,580 to about 31,850 cases by April the 16th. Based on the case fatality rate to date, this could mean we reach between 500 and 700 total deaths in Canada by next week. Federal government's modeling on COVID-19 was sobering. Between 11,000 and 22,000 Canadians could die from COVID-19, and the government calls that almost a best-case scenario. But the most tragic situation is clearly going on in long-term care facilities in provinces like Quebec and Ontario. Dozens of people have already died. And some of the scenes described in the Montreal Gazette newspaper at a facility in Dorval, Quebec, were likened to a concentration camp. It's hard to even say those words. Does the federal government need to step up its response to these hotspots, not just the provinces? Let's bring back the scrum to talk about the way back. 
Andy Bergeron Oliver is back, Joyce Napier is back, and our special guests Lisa Raitt and Amanda Lang are here. Um, Lisa, I got to start with you because the long-term care facility stories are, are pretty brutal. They're stunning. Uh, the Quebec is, are, Quebec is already talking about laying criminal charges, by the way. Does the federal government have a role in facilities like this in this crisis? Why not? I mean, I think at this point in time, why are we standing on any kind of ceremony, especially when it comes to the most vulnerable? And the, the issue for me, Evan, is there's a lot of caregivers out there who have long-term facilities in their care plan. And I got to tell you, with people in fragile health, you got to look at it again and say, you know, what really is going to be the plan here for the future? And it's, uh, it's tragic. And I don't see why we can't have at least the health committee of the parliament taking a look at it and understanding what the limits are, how they can help, what is going on, and bring awareness to the rest of society. We've got to do better. Yeah, most of the deaths, Annie, are, are you see the vast majority of them are these kind of, quote, hot spots. But it's the staff is scared to, to be there, and the people inside are dying. Uh, I, what is the way forward? I, I know provinces have talked about putting an iron ring around these, but I don't know what that... It practically means. I think that right now the government has to admit that this is a crisis that has been hidden to Canadians for so long. The fact that these long-term care facilities have been underfunded, they have been understaffed right. for years. This is not a new problem, but unfortunately right now it is crippling society. And the government needs to start immediately by making sure that these people have the PPE that they need, the protective equipment, so they do feel safe. They also need to try to increase wages. In a lot of these cases, these people are getting between $18 and $20 an hour to make ends meet. They they have to go to multiple different facilities. The government has clamped down on that in these new guidelines that were released so that they can help reduce the spread. But the fact that these people still are now struggling financially is a problem. The government needs to offer some type of assistance financially to incentivize people to go in. They need to search for more volunteers. And I think as Lisa was saying, there is an opportunity for the government to do more. Perhaps the health committee is the position, but right now they need, they need immediate help. And perhaps maybe that's even something the military can be doing. I have seen some people suggesting that that might be an idea of Evan. Amanda, you wanted to weigh in on that. Yeah, I mean, uh, it, to me, Evan, this is one of the places, and we see it in other vulnerable workers, that we are exposing problems in our society that we are going to have to deal with. Um, and uh, it may be that the governments are hesitating, both federal and provincial, because they know it's a bit of a, a morass. And once they get into it, how do you get out? We've, we see now our elderly population in care is not being cared for, uh, not up to any kind of standard that most of us would like. Do you, can you imagine the reaction if 19 college students died in the course of a weekend in one dorm? Uh, we would all be out in the streets. Well, we wouldn't be because we're not allowed. But we'd be protesting and furious. Oh, elderly people die and we say, well, you know, they're elderly. Uh-uh. This is a problem that we, we, whether it's federal, provincial, somebody needs to step in here and say, this is not right. Joyce. Yeah. Well, you know, I, I, I think this. We heard a lot about these, the lack of PPEs in high-profile hospitals, Toronto, Montreal. Um, doctors talking about it, nurses talking about it, but these people who work in these facilities of uh, retirement homes are, are, you know, off the radar. We don't talk about them. So they don't have PPEs, they don't have any protection. Some of them don't even have the training uh, for this kind of epidemic. And so you, you, you've got to think of what happened in the back. I'm not justifying it by any stretch of the imagination, but I can just imagine the conditions also of those people who were trying to care or who didn't and who abandoned ship. 
How, what were their conditions? Did they even have masks? Did they even have any training? Did they even, they, they probably had no means to take care of these people and nobody to talk about to, to because the government is so busy elsewhere um, trying to get these PPEs for hospitals and for doctors and nurses and not for these people. So we've got to look at that too. If you want to care for people, the people that care for them have to be cared for. One of the, uh, I think this crisis has exposed is all the forgotten workers who are paid, people are fighting, governments fight over minimum wage and suddenly they're essential workers. You know, uh, people, uh, truckers or grocery store clerks or people exactly. working along. So we're exposing this Boy, these are the front lines. Our economy depends on them. Maybe we've got to reevaluate. Lisa, let me just go to you and talk about a way forward. And maybe that's one of the things that will happen as a consequence of this. But when you look at um, Justin Trudeau says a vaccine's a year to 18 months away. We just don't know. We hope it's, it's sooner. But between then, we can't just stay in isolation for 18 months or a year. Is there a half measure, a testing and tracing that the government has to put forward in terms of what's a half back way forward? What do you think that could look like? Well, first of all, I have heard this morning already, and I'm very concerned about it, that there is a serology test that is available, that is being used in other countries, that comes out of Canada. And Health Canada has said that they're not going to approve it right now because they don't know where it fits into their plan. Well, Evan, where is their plan? because we can't sit here for three months and the economy stall the way it has, quite frankly. So Canada has some great product out there. It should be fast-tracked through Health Canada and say that it may not be 100% efficacy. Say that it may not get it right. Use it for the appropriate part of testing that you need it for, but get it out there and get it going for goodness sake. Amanda, what's, what's, what's the halfway back here? What are some of the scenarios? Well, so, well, let me just actually on that point that Lisa's making, Evan, say we are not good at this. Our, our governments are not good at uh, procuring from Canadian business. That's just a big picture story. It's a problem we have. I've talked to innovators in the last couple of weeks who have products who are going to source the U.S. government because it's the only way to get money fast. That is something that we could fix. Uh, we should fix it now. I will say, you know, this whole conversation, whether it's the, the workers in the, in the nursing homes, um, it's the people who work part-time, so the CERB doesn't work for them because they don't qualify. We're exposing vulnerable people here. Yeah. And I do think if there's a lasting impact that we should be looking for, it's to support those people, to figure out what the gaps are here, uh, because, you know, sure. they're, the, the, very, uh, the very wealthy are gonna survive this just fine. There's support out there for people in the middle. They're vulnerable people who are not going to be okay here. Joyce, I'll give you the last word real quick on testing, testing, testing. How desperate is that? That is the most important thing. Uh, we know that. We've seen other countries. The government always tells us based on what other countries are doing, um, sort of we're behind them, so which is a good thing in terms of the evolution of the, of the virus. So let's take lessons from them. We know that testing is the key. So the government should get on that and test as many people as they can. Uh, that's the way that we're gonna track this and that's the way probably to control it before we get a vaccine because mm -hmm. probably the prime minister is right. We won't sleep tight and uh, until there is a vaccine. That is the, is, is the only thing. But before that, maybe we can start testing and right. seeing um, you know, where this is going and how fast it's going. Yeah. All right, guys, i got to leave it there on, a, on an Easter morning. Lots to think about. Annie Joyce, Amanda, and Lisa, I uh, hope you and your loved ones stay safe. Thanks, all of you, for watching. Joyce quoted the 
Bee Gees earlier. They have another song, Alone. You are not alone. We're just apart, but we are in it together. Happy Easter, happy Passover, happy Vaisakhi. Take care. We'll be back here in seven short days. I'll see you tomorrow on Power Play.